Glad to bring one to you. You're already on the job. I'm behind it. I'm behind the curve. Once you get that Bible or you brought your own, you might want to go ahead and turn to John chapter 20. We're going to be going through John chapter 20. But once you've found it and stick your thumb in there, you might want to go ahead and flip over to Matthew 28. We're just going to look at a few verses quickly there. Um, We're not going to spend much time in Matthew, but we'll spend more time in John 20. Well, good morning, church. There's a lot of faces I don't really know here. I usually go to first, like Lori said when she did the announcement, I usually go to first service. So it's good to see you all. Isn't it good to have a little bit of taste of autumn in the air? Yes. Everybody, sigh of relief on that. Well, not everybody, but most people. (laughs) I'm not going to name names. Speaking of changing of the seasons, usually when I teach, if there's something significant coming up on the Jewish calendar, I usually share that. And so uh, two weeks from this evening, since the Jewish day starts at sunset, two weeks from this evening will be Rosh Hashanah. That is not Rosh Hashanah. It's Rosh Hashanah. You can say it with me. Rosh Hashanah. Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah. Uh, and that just means the head of the year. And if you have any Jewish friends and you want to greet them, you can say Shana Tova. Shana Tova. Shana means year. Tova means good. So Shana Tova, you're wishing them a good year. So if you have a chance to use that, like I said, it starts two weeks. Of course, that is the first of a number of events that the Jewish people call the High Holy Days. Because you also have the, the trumpets, the Day of Atonement, the uh, booths uh, or tabernacles, uh, Sukkot. And so um, this, there's a lot of holidays that follow on the, on the heels of this. But anyway, that's just uh, for your information to use if you get the chance to, uh, to share with somebody or visit with somebody. That's uh, good to remember Shana Tova. Also, before I get started, I want to deliberately and unashamedly uh, promote the Greek class starting tomorrow <laughs> tomorrow evening at 7 o'clock. Um, why Greek? Well, because the New Testament was originally written in Greek. Um, books, you don't have to bring books. We're going to supply notebooks and pages. That by the time you get done with the class, you will have a little booklet uh, that will have uh, the information in it. So there's nothing for you to buy. Um, Memorization, when you go look into a language, that's often a fear. How much do I have to memorize? Well, we're not learning Greek. We're learning about Greek. This is an intro to Greek. So really for memorization, the first couple of weeks, we'll look at the alphabet and some pronunciation rules. And for memorization, that's it. The rest of the time, you can sit back and coast. Because what we're going to do is look at parts of speech. We'll look at it in English and say, this is the way it works in English. And then we're going to turn around and say, and this is the way it works in Greek. And you'll find out why Greek is so much a better choice for God to put his word in than what English would be. Uh, English is, uh, I'm just glad it wasn't my second language. I'm glad I, <laughs> I learned it growing up because it would be really hard, I think, to learn English. Um, but anyway, it's uh, I, I look forward to it. It's a lot of fun for me because not only do we look at the parts of speech, but once we do, we take that part of speech, that piece of grammar, and then we look at insights in the New Testament, things that are in the New Testament that English translations have a difficult time really conveying, emphasis and nuances, and so we will look at those. We spend the last 15, 20 minutes just looking at insights based upon what we're learning about Greek. So, And I really, you know, others may have a different opinion, but for me, it's just a lot of fun. I enjoy sharing those things, and so 
Anyway, looking forward to that. Uh, let's see, was there anything else on that? If you don't remember grammar or something, it's okay, because like I said, we cover the Greek. and, and You don't have to say, well, I'm not going to become a pastor. Well, it's not about becoming a pastor. Learning about Greek, that was the language of the New Testament, is to understand God's word better. When I took Greek, I, I took uh, Greek 1 and 2 and exegesis 1 and 2 at uh, uh, Fringe University in Wichita, Kansas, uh, back in 80, 81, and 82. And it, the reason was not to become... Not to stand up here. I had no idea I'd be standing up here you know, in front of you all. Uh, it was because I wanted to know the word of God better. I wanted to make a better defense for the word. Whenever people would come to the door and say things that were not true biblically, I would have an answer for them because uh, they probably don't know Greek. If they did, they wouldn't be in the cult that they're in. And uh, it's just it's just handy for that. So there's lots of good reasons for learning it. Um, so I'll, I'll move on. That's the end of my deliberate and unashamed or shameless uh, plugging of the class. All right. With that, let's pray and we'll look into God's word. Father, we are thankful for your word, that you've not left us ignorant and that you have uh, revealed to us in your word the, these events that we'll be looking at this morning and, and uh, you want us to know about them. And I ask that you would bless your word, that your Holy Spirit would take your word and that you would use both of these in our hearts to move us along from where we are to where you want us to be. And if there's someone needing comfort this morning, that you'd bring that comfort in. If they need encouragement, that you'd bring that encouragement to them. And if they need uh, building up or if there's uh, questions and, or confusion, we ask that you would bring understanding that you would accomplish your work, your will in each one of us this morning by your spirit and by your word. So we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's start with Matthew 28, keeping your finger in John 20. What we're going to look at is, it's probably up here behind, nope, no it's not. There, nope, that's the chronology. Well, we're looking at, want to look at what really happened on Resurrection Day. And yes, we have these, these, uh, these points that we're going to look at. We're going to look at the chronology because there are some who look at the different accounts and the different gospels and would say, we got a contradiction here. Uh, the Bible is contradicting itself. No, it's not. We just need to understand it. So we're going to put that chronology together and try to understand what happened and what, in what order that it happened. So we're going to look at the chronology of the Resurrection Day. We're going to look at encounters on the Resurrection Day. We're going to look at realizations of the Resurrection and, and the blessing of Resurrection faith. So those are our main points. We'll have some sub-points. So starting in Matthew chapter 28, <clears throat> we are just going to read the first ten verses. Now, after the Sabbath, oh, by the way... <laughs> I didn't get very far, did I? This word in Greek is actually plural, Sabbaths. And so Matthew is probably referring to the Passover holiday as well as the normal Sabbath uh, that you have at the, the seventh day of each week. So after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning, and his clothing was white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And indeed, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. 
So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples word. As they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them saying, Rejoice! So they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. I just want to make a few notes out of this. We see the Mary Magdalene is mentioned here. When we get to John 20, we'll see that Mary Magdalene is mentioned again. And then Matthew makes note of a, another woman there by the name of Mary. Uh, which one? There are a number of them. But in Mark chapter 16, verse 1, and also in Luke 24, 10, uh, they identify this Mary as Mary, the mother of James. Mark also names another woman, Salome, and Luke mentions another woman, Joanna, and Luke also says, and other women. So there are at least four, four plus, more than four, who came to the tomb, and they were going there to express their love for Jesus by giving care to his dead body. That was what was on their mind. Then they saw the angels. And we can see from this description of the angels that angels are very awesome looking. Angels do not look like chubby little naked babies with wings. That is not what they look like. They are much more fearful looking than that. Um, some people call these naked little chubby babies with wings cherubs, but that comes from the Hebrew word, word and the cherubim, which is the, the cherubim would be the plural. They don't look like chubby little naked babies with wings either. And you, there's also in Hebrew the seraphim. Seraph comes from the word for flaming. So these are the flaming ones. They don't look like that either. But I uh, heard of a guy who was talking about his wife and his nickname for her was Angel. And so the guy he was talking to said, well, she must be beautiful or heavenly. And he said, no, actually, she's just always up in the air harping about something. (laughs) Now, I should give this disclaimer. Any of you ladies, if your husband calls you angel, it's not him. This is just a joke. (laughs) This wasn't something that came up in a men's meeting or whatever. So don't go, were you talking about me? No, this is just a joke. I don't know about any of this. You you know, I don't, there was anybody here that that calls her wife angel, but it's just a joke. Okay. Please receive that disclaimer. (laughs) Um, This whole idea of the chubby little naked baby, that probably comes from Cupid, which actually is part of Greek and Roman mythology. Uh, so it has nothing to do with the Bible or with biblical angels. Okay? Now, in Mark 16.5 and Luke 24.3, it tells us that the women actually entered the tomb to see where the body of Jesus had been set. And um, when we look at John chapter 20, in just a little bit, we'll see that he mentions two angels. Luke also mentions that there were two angels. But Matthew and Mark only mention the one angel who did the speaking. And the angel who spoke to them was the one who rolled away the stone and sat on it and terrified the guards. And notice it was guards, plural. And um, then Jesus appeared to them outside the tomb. Uh, in, 
Oh, okay, wait a minute. That's still the angels that he appeared to them inside the tomb. Okay, that's also in Luke 24.3. All right. We want to take note that the women took hold of his feet. We also want to take note that they worshipped him. We also want to take note that both, both by the angel and by the words of Jesus that the disciples were told to go to Galilee. Sometimes we're a little harder on the disciples than what we need to be. Uh, I've heard teaching where they said, you know, when, in John chapter 21, which we're not going to get to, and they went to Galilee, they said, why were the disciples there? They were told to stay in the city. Well, actually, the command to stay in the city was right before the day of Pentecost, not right after res- resurrection. Jesus told them to meet them, meet him in Galilee, and so they did. They were not being disobedient by being in Galilee at the time. That was when they went fishing. So uh, to just summarize what we see here, we see that there's a group of women, at least four possibly more, uh, they entered the tomb, they saw and heard the angel's announcement, and the angel commissioned them to tell the others, and they saw Jesus, and they held his feet. So, with that knowledge in mind, because we're, we're going to draw these together in, um, for chronology's sake, to get the whole picture. So now we can turn back over to John chapter 20. And we'll start reading in verse 1 because John tells us some things that Matthew did not include and vice versa. Matthew includes things that John does not include. And so as we read chapter 20, verse 1, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been rolled away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Okay, now here's part of the secret of the chronology. As it says, that it only mentions Mary, but Mary uses the word in verse 2, and we do not know where they have laid him. Okay, that's the, the uh, hint that we have that she was not the only woman. Okay, she went with other women. She says we here, acknowledging that these other women went also. But when they were approaching the tomb and they saw the stone rolled away from the tomb, Mary jumped to a conclusion, whether by herself or maybe somebody suggested it, but she jumped to this conclusion. Somebody broke into the tomb. They stole the body of Jesus. She didn't stick around to wait to see. She started back to town to go get Peter and John. Okay? The other women did stay. The other women did see the angels. The other women did get to see Jesus. The other women did hold his feet. Mary was on her way back to town. The other women left the tomb. Mary's talked to Peter and John, as we'll see. They, they leave, so they're coming back. And um, and so this under this chronology here is that Mary Magdalene did go, but uh, she was not the first to see Jesus. Uh, the others saw, saw Jesus first. And as a general rule of thumb, it's better to Check for facts. It's a better exercise to check for facts than it is to jump to conclusions. If your spouse says something to you and it hurts your feelings and you think they're being mean to you, uh, you might just check to see if it's a misunderstanding and not jump to the conclusion that they're being mean to you. See? Um, It could be that the person who drives around you um, quickly and pulls over in front of you it could be that they're an idiot and a maniac, like you first think are thinking, you know, 
and they need to have their license taken away from them. Uh, but, however, we are not omniscient. We don't know all the facts. And it could be that a, a man is trying to get his wife to the doctor because the baby's on his way. See? It could be a woman taking her child who's bleeding to the emergency room. It could be somebody who just got word that one of their parents is dying. It could, we, we don't know what it could be. It could be that they truly are an idiot and a maniac and should have their license taken away. That is a possibility. But we ought to first give grace, assume innocence, give grace first. That's a better exercise. Grace to your spouse, grace to one another, and uh, not jump to conclusions. Mary jumped to this conclusion, and so this put her in a, a state of despair, uh, of grieving, she didn't know what happened to Jesus. If she'd waited around a little bit longer, she would have seen the angels. She would have seen Jesus. She didn't do that. So she was despairing all the way back to town, getting Peter and John all the way back. She's despairing all the way back to the tomb. Peter and John leave. She's despairing. And then she gets her own personal uh, encounter with Jesus. And so, um, and, and, her, and her grieving, her despairing was all based on fiction. Nobody broke into the tomb. Nobody stole the body of Jesus. This was all manufactured. This was not the way it was at all. It was, it was not necessary. It was not necessary, but it wasn't true. See? And so jumping to conclusions is just not a good thing. Uh, so Mary, driven by emotion, jumped to the conclusion that the, the stone was moved and somebody must have stolen the body. But we'll see how this pans out here. As we pick it up again in verse 3, Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, <clears throat> and went into the tomb and he saw the linen cloths lying there and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away to their own homes. So this uh, brings us to our second point, the encounters of the resurrection. We already saw that the first point, sub-point A, that Jesus appeared uh, and, and comforted the ones who were expressing their love for him by going to care for his body. Uh, next, we see subpoint B, Jesus comforting the one believing, which was John. John came in and believed. Now, a couple of things I want to point out in this section is that three times we have a word that's translated saw. In verse 5, John saw the linen cloths. In verse 6, Peter went in and he saw. And then in verse 8, John goes ahead and comes into the tomb and he saw. And each one of these is actually a different word in Greek. It's not that to say that saw is a bad translation. Saw is a good translation, especially for the first one. But, but we miss in English a nuance here that, uh, that the Greek language gives us. So we have three different words all translated here as saw when they looked into them. The translation he saw is um, quite appropriate in verse 4. John simply saw the linen wrappings, and that's, that's all the word means. No particular nuance there. However, when Peter went in and he saw, this is to discern, intensively looking, to acknowledge, behold, consider, perceive, to be a spectator, to view attentively, to take a view of, 
survey and consider, uh, consider uh, to perceive with the eyes to discern. So Peter's looking to go, okay, if somebody broke into the tomb and they were going to steal the body, would they take all these wrappings off and lay it? Because the picture we get is that when Jesus, when his body raised, was raised, that the cloths just, the linen wrappings just fell down flat. His body wasn't there anymore. And so Peter's looking at this discerning, this doesn't make sense that somebody would steal the body and, and leave the wrappings here. Why would they bother, if you're trying to steal him, get off with the body, you're going to take the time to unwrap him? And it just nothing made sense. Peter's trying to figure that out. So that's what we see in the this saw. Then John, when he comes into the tomb, the word that's used here is he saw in the sense of to become acquainted with by experience. He looked at the evidence and believed. So then Peter and John went back to the city, leaving Mary there weeping. And we'll pick that up in verse 11. But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now, when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabuni, which is to say, Teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. Okay. So Peter and John went back to the city and they left Mary there weeping when Jesus appears to her. And we see our next sub point C, Jesus comforts the grieving. We'll actually see not just Mary, but also the disciples going to Emmaus who are covered under this point. It's interesting that the presence of the angels did not impress her, even though the word used here by Mary seeing the angels in verse 12 is the same word that was used for Peter, the one where you're looking intently, trying to discern. She was looking at these angels trying to discern, but it would appear that she wasn't particularly impressed with them. She only had eyes for Jesus. Her, she was consumed with uh, wanting to see Jesus. So um, when he does come up behind her, the same word is used in both verses. But in the first instance here in verse 14, now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing here. One of the meanings of that word is to twist. And it has nothing to do with Chubby Checker. And it has nothing to do with 1960 song and dance. It is... Uh, it, the impression I get is she just turned her head, maybe heard him behind her or something. She turned her head and didn't really take a good good look. And Jesus spoke to her, who are you looking for? But then once he says her name in verse 16, she turns and she turns completely around and faces him head on and she sees who he is. 
What I'm getting at is there's no problem with the body of Jesus. There are some who teach that Jesus was raised spiritually or that he took on bodily forms that were different, and so they didn't recognize him right away. And in every case, that is flatly, patently wrong. There's usually a good logical explanation why she was crying. It was This whole story started while it was still dark. I don't know how good the light was. Uh, she may not have turned completely the first time. There's reasons why she didn't recognize him. There's nothing wrong with the body of Jesus. Okay, The body of Jesus was resurrected. There's nothing changed about it. It still looked like him. He still had the nail prints. So we'll get to that later. So she turned to face him and she knew who it was. Now, the uh, original group of women, as we saw in Matthew 28, when they saw Jesus, they took hold of his feet. All right. Well, it appear that Mary probably did the same type of thing because it says here that um, Jesus said to her, do not cling to me. Now, the old King James Version says, touch me not. And perhaps you've seen this like in, in plays or with cantatas or something like that where Jesus appears to Mary and, and uh, she reaches for him and he jumps back and says, no, don't touch me. You know, and, the, and there's people who have speculated on Jesus, the resurrected body of Jesus couldn't be touched until he'd gone to be with the Father. No, it's nothing like that at all. The Greek tense that's used here when he said, touch me not or do not cling to me, the, the the New King James Version does a better job. Do not cling to me. In Greek, there are two ways to say, make a negative command. One negative command is stop doing something you're already in the process of doing. And the other negative command is don't even start. So this would be a prohibition. When Jesus said this, do not cling to me, he was saying, stop hanging on to me. So the New King James does a little bit better job of that. I think the New American Standard probably hits the bullseye on it because it translates it as stop clinging to me. Well, that pretty well describes what the Greek tense is saying here. Stop clinging to me. I can imagine her heart was, I lost you once. I am not going to lose you again. And so she was hanging on to him. And Jesus is letting her know that she cannot hold him here. Things are not the same way. Yes, he's resurrected, but it's not going to be the same way now as it had been before because the very next thing he says i have not yet ascended to my father this again in greek is pretty clear the tense that is used he says i have not yet ascended it's looking at it as a completed action with an ongoing state so he's saying i'm going to the father and i'm staying there and the ongoing state is i'm going to be staying with the father so you can't hang on to me and hold me here see what he's saying and that's where he is to this day. To this day, he is still in that state of having been ascended. Okay? He is still ascended. Uh, and he will be until he comes back for us. So that's just got a couple of insights in Greek. The, the Greek language gives us here. The next event that happened on Resurrection Day is the account of the two who are on the road to Emmaus. This is in Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 35. And he goes into pretty good detail talking about two grieving disciples, not the 12, but uh, other followers of Jesus who are on their way to Emmaus. We don't have time to read it, but I want to highlight a few things from this passage of Scripture. Um, I'm sure you remember the story. They were walking back to Emmaus and Jesus walked up to them and said, what are you guys talking about? And they were surprised that he didn't know about the goings on in the city uh, with his, you know, referring to Jesus himself. But he got to spend seven miles. That's going to take you know, maybe a couple of hours to walk that, depending on how fast you're walking. could be less if you're really, really pushing it. But they were walking and talking, and I suspect it was a little bit slower. And he had these two hours to go back through Moses and the prophets to explain 
from the scriptures how the Messiah had to come and die and to be raised from the dead. What a great time to have your tape recorder on. (laughs) Um, To hear Jesus open their eyes. But then whenever he broke the bread, they arrived at the destination. He broke the bread. And he was right. One should take note that their eyes were restrained. Their eyes were kept from recognizing. There was nothing different about the body of Jesus. There was nothing wrong with the form of Jesus. It was all about their eyes. Their eyes, God deliberately kept them from recognizing who he was. When he broke the bread, their eyes were no longer restrained. Once once God removed the veil, uh, as it were, um, they recognized him right off. Well, then they ran back. When they ran back to Jerusalem, they found that the... Eleven disciples, Judas is gone, of course, and they'd, they'd gathered other, other disciples and they found that they were all talking about Jesus being raised, too. And they said that the Lord indeed is risen. The Lord is risen indeed. And he appeared to Peter, to Simon. So then after they heard that, then they got to recount their story, how they had met Jesus on the road to Emmaus and, and how he was revealed to them. So with that. Um, background on it. We can go ahead and continue on in this. So that event took place, and now we're at the evening, uh, that same evening. And we come to, well, I should point out subpoint D, Jesus comforts the prodigal. This statement where they said, the Lord is risen indeed, he appeared to Simon, that is the only statement we have that in the Bible that tells us that Jesus had a special appearance to Peter himself. We don't know what it was about. We don't know what they said. Um, and God has left it that way for us. This was something private between him and Peter. And so, but he did let us know in his word that he appeared to Simon. And so uh, Simon, or Simon Peter, the one who denied him, the prodigal, uh, Jesus comforts the prodigal. And then E, subpoint E, verses 19 through 23. Jesus comforts the fearful. This we'll see is his disciples. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst of them in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. I think that's probably an understatement. They were glad. Yeah, they were glad. And, uh, So Jesus said to them again, peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. A couple of points here that we might want to look at is that they received the Holy Spirit. And again, I've heard teaching where they're uh, in the book of Acts, the first chapter, they decide to figure out who's going to replace Judas. And I've heard them say, but they didn't have the Holy Spirit. They were just doing this on their own. But actually, they did have the Holy Spirit. Jesus said to them right here, receive the Holy Spirit. They did receive the Holy Spirit. Now, there was still Acts chapter 2, the, the filling of the Holy Spirit. That's, uh, that was a different event. But it wasn't like they were devoid of having the Holy Spirit, having received the Holy Spirit. That's one point. Second point, verse 23. I don't want you, this kind of sounds like it's a cause and effect type thing. Uh, or that it's a bestowal of power. And this verse is similar to 
Matthew chapter 16 and Matthew chapter 18 when Jesus says something similar to the disciples. Uh, here again, in English, it looks like it's maybe he's bestowing them with the power to forgive or not forgive sins. Uh, but that's not actually the case. When you look at this in the, the Greek tenses that are used, I have a uh, sample wooden translation here. The verb is quite clear uh, in Greek, uh, but it's difficult to communicate in English. So this rough, rigid, that's why I call it a wooden translation. It's a rough, rigid translation or amendment translation. If you should forgive the sins of any, they already have been forgiven them. And if you should retain the sins of any, they already have been retained. So it's actually a confirmation of, uh, of divine leading. And how does this work out for us? If you're witnessing somebody and they confess their sins and they repent of their sins and they believe in Jesus and they receive Jesus, you can say your sins are forgiven. And it's why? Because you have the power to forgive the sins? No. It has nothing to do with you or me. It has to do with the fact that since they have, that's the promises of God. If they've repented, if they've confessed and repented and received Jesus, their sins are forgiven. We can tell them that. Your sins are forgiven. But it's not because we have the power to do it. Uh, but it is true. They're, in fact, their sins have already been forgiven then because of this. If, however, the person you're witnessing to... Uh, you, they, they reject the message. They don't receive Jesus. They don't repent. You can say, uh, your sins are not forgiven. And it's not because you're withholding forgiveness. It has nothing to do with you or me. It's because their sins have already not been forgiven them. And so that's how it works out with us. And that's, that's more of the, uh, the sense of the Greek tenses behind the verse 23 there. Not that we have power to forgive or retain sins. <clears throat> Verse 24. Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now, this verb uh, in verse 25 it says the other disciples therefore said to him that kind of just sounds like it's a one-time event but the tense that's used there in Greek indicates that this is a repeated action we saw the Lord no, no I don't believe that yes we did we saw the Lord they were telling him over and again we the Lord did appear to us we did see him uh, this is a, a repeated action word so you might say we could translate it they were saying to him to try to give that that idea of Something happening more than once. <clears throat> now, again, sometimes we're harder on the disciples than we should be. I've heard teaching that said something like, well, you know, all the disciples were terrified and hid, and only the women were there to stand by Jesus as he was being crucified and that sort of thing. No, that's not exactly true. We're harder on the disciples than that they deserve. Luke chapter 23, verse 49 says, but all his acquaintances sinned. The word for all there in Greek means all. But all his acquaintances. Yes, that was supposed to be. Thank you. That was <laughs> that was a, a, a small attempt at humor there. 
All his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. So they were all there. Thomas was an eyewitness. He knew about the the nails. He knew about the spear. He saw the spear pierce his side, just as John tells us that the spear entered in his body and it proved that Jesus died. He didn't swoon. He didn't pass out. Jesus died because blood and water came out of the cavity when they punctured his side. He died of a ruptured heart. Thomas was an eyewitness to that. There are some... Well, the watchtower says Jesus wasn't crucified on a cross. He was impaled on a stake. And they draw pictures and they have a guy. He's got his wrist crossed, one nail through both wrists over his head, and he's hanging from this stake. Once again, the watchtowers lied to their followers. Jesus was not impaled on a stake. Thomas tells us right here, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails, plural, in his hands the print of the nails. There are at least two then. One on each side. Jesus was indeed crucified on the cross. Thomas gives, as an eyewitness to that, gives us um, the answer to to the watchtower on that point. And the spear in his side, that was just to prove that he died. That was evidence for us that Jesus was truly dead and didn't just pass out. Next point. Jesus comforts the skeptic. And, of course, we see right away that this is referring to Thomas. Verse 27. Uh, let's back up again. I didn't read 26. Um, and after eight days, his disciples were again inside and, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving but believing, I think Thomas' first thought was he knew. He didn't know Jesus was even around to hear him say that. He was talking to the disciples, but Jesus knew. Um, should also make note here that when Jesus appeared to him, he just appeared in the room. It doesn't say he went through a door, went through a floor, went through a window, went through the ceiling, went through anywhere. He just wanted to be there, and he just appeared there. His body, as we... If we go back and read in Luke chapter 24, the disciples thought they saw a spirit. He said, a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see me have. Jesus didn't go through anything. He's not a spirit. He's not a ghost. This is his body. His body has nail prints. He offered them to Thomas to see and to put his hand in there um, to know that Jesus was indeed risen. That was indeed the body that was crucified is the one that was risen. Fact is, the word that's translated resurrection or in the Bible, the Greek word means to stand up again. That's what it is. Stand up again. Now, we don't know that Thomas actually stuck his finger in the nail prints or that he actually stuck his hand aside. I don't think he actually had to. <laughs> I think it was uh, probably not necessary. But he had the opportunity had he wanted to. Um, so that comes to the next point, the realizations of the resurrection. We saw one of the realizations is that we saw that they received the Holy Spirit back in verse 22. The next realization here, verse 28, and Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. This realization that Jesus is both Lord and God. Thomas proclaimed him to be Lord and God. Uh, woodenly in Greek, the, the Lord of me and the God of me. There's no way around it. This is rock solid in Greek. You can't translate it as something else. Thomas is calling him Lord and God. And Thomas um, did not get rebuked by the Lord. Jesus didn't say, 
you know, when you look back at the book of Revelation and, and John was going to worship the angel, the angel said, oh, don't do that. I am a servant of God like you are. Don't do that. Just worship God. Jesus didn't come to Thomas and say, now, Thomas, so, you know, you're, you're just going a little overboard here. Just worship God. He didn't say that. Jesus said to him, verse 29, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Thomas calls him Lord of God, and that brings us to the climax of this gospel. The climax of the gospel is on that Jesus is Lord and God. He is risen, and he is Lord and God. How did John start his gospel? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He started in his first sentence proclaiming Jesus is God. Verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. And so... This is the way he starts off. And then in, in chapter 8, verse 28, Jesus made the proclamation, said, When you have lifted up, the, uh, lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. Now, I know the translations have the word he, but if you look, he is in italics. That's not in the Greek text. Jesus didn't say I am he. He said I am. This is the name that God gave Moses back, back in uh, Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. Moses said, who shall I tell them sent me? He says, I am who I am. Tell them I am sent you to them. Uh, in the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures called the Septuagint, it's ego eimi haon. I am the one who I am. And so ego eimi is what Jesus said in John chapter 8 verse, and in other places. He said it in a number of places. But this is one of them. He says, once you've lifted up the Son of Man, and of course he was talking about on the cross, and they understood it when he told them this. They said, what are you talking about? We, we thought Christ was going to live forever. They, they knew what was meant by this. And he, they, he said, uh, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, and you know I am. Well, he res- he's raised from the dead. Thomas saw his body, saw the nail prints, saw the side, and he said, my Lord and my God. He did indeed see that Jesus is the I am. Jesus doesn't rebuke Thomas. Instead, he blesses this proclamation of faith. And I would imagine that most of us here this morning has not seen the physically resurrected body of Jesus with nail prints inside. None of us have seen, but those of us who are believers, we believe this blessing is for you and me. Jesus blessed this proclamation of faith. The bodily resurrection is the very foundation for us, for the church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul tells us that if Jesus was not raised, we are liars, we are wasting our time, there's no hope for us all, we'll die in our sins. It's foundational. Jesus is alive. Jesus is Lord and God. I remember a woman in Wichita, I was teaching, and I mentioned the bodily resurrection. I think she must have had some... uh, some teaching in the past that might have been tied to one of the cults like Jehovah's Witnesses or something, but uh, she didn't get this bodily resurrection thing. So she asked me about it after the service was over, and she said, I want to get this bodily resurrection thing. I said, well, they, Jesus was on the cross, and they, his body died, and they took that body and they put it in the tomb, and then he rose. And she goes, a bodily resurrection? It wasn't a spiritual resurrection? No, he was not a ghost. He was not a spirit. His body was raised. They took his body. His spirit was still alive. His spirit was still busy doing things. But they took that body that died. They put him in the tomb. And on the third day, he got up. And her eyes got big. And she said, he got up. I said, he got up. He got up and he walked out. 
And she, her eyes got bigger. She said, he got up and he walked out. I said, he got out and he, he got up and he walked out and he'll never die again. And she's just, the amazement of what the resurrection means, what the bodily resurrection of Christ is and how important that is for us as believers and the comfort that we get from that. Uh, it's the, that type of excitement should draw us in uh, this realization of the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus brought comfort to the loving, to the grieving, to the believing, to the prodigal, to the fearing and the skeptic. Wherever you are this morning, the resurrected Messiah can also bring his comfort to you. Jesus is Lord and God. Therefore, open your hearts to him. If you've never received Jesus to be saved, Jesus is Lord and God. Open your heart to him. Receive him. If you receive Jesus, but you're not fully in, you're not wholly devoted, you're not entirely given over to him, or you've been holding back, or perhaps you're not been filled with his Holy Spirit, or maybe Jesus isn't the most important thing in your life, he is Lord and God. Open your heart to him and give him the preeminence that he deserves. If he's given you something to do and you're still resisting him, you're putting it off, you're walking in disobedience. Jesus is Lord and God. Open your heart. Go back to that point of disobedience. Repent and become obedient. If you make Jesus your obsession, you will not regret it in all of eternity. As the worship team comes up to lead us in the last song, let's, let's just close with prayer. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your sacrifice, for your provision for our sins so that we can be forgiven and we can live with you forever and live with the Father forever. We're so grateful for your resurrection. We're so thankful for your word and that you've given us the testimony of the eyewitnesses, the evidences um, that we have in your word. They're, they're a firm foundation for us. And we're thankful that... Uh, It's a firm foundation for us, not only in this life, but also in all of eternity. You are faithful and true. You are Lord and God. Help us to cooperate with your work in our lives by your Holy Spirit and by your word. So that we can be vessels that are fit for honorable use, for holy use. So that we would be to the praise of your glory. Holy Spirit, have your way in us in our lives even now, and move us further along in the Father's goal for us, his goal being that we would be conformed to the image of his Son. Help us to become more like Jesus. Father, we desire your will for us, and so we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Shalom.